Good morning. It's a pleasure to be before you this morning and to open God's Word with you. I ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the end of 2 Samuel. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 23. I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you. It's hard to believe another school year has come and gone for us at Mercer, but just want to, as I always, have this opportunity just to thank you all so much for being such a safe and loving church family to me and to my family uh, you are such a support to our ministry with RUF at Mercer in so many ways, and I just want to say thank you. And again, it's my pleasure to be before you to open God's Word with you. Before we read here in Second Samuel chapter 23, just to give some context, uh, this is the end of the author of Samuel's account of the life and reign of King David. David, who is mentioned in the Bible um, the most of any person, Um, If you took Jesus out of the Bible, you would have to conclude that the Bible was about David uh, for as much as he has mentioned. But obviously we have Jesus and we know uh, that he, that David only serves to point to him. As we come here to the end of 2 Samuel and the end of the author of Samuel's account, we find chapters 21 through 24 are actually kind of this inclusio to wrap up what the author has been trying to tell us. They're not, uh, we're not getting chronological events as they happened. We're actually getting some things that happened earlier in the life and reign of David. And for the whole account, for all that the author of Samuel tells us in his book, um, the overarching question, the overarching focus the whole time is, who is fit to serve as the king of God's people Who is the king that God's people need? Who is the ideal king? And David shows us uh, in so many ways. He's a man after God's own heart. He's righteous. He's faithful. He's gracious. But if you read through the David story, and especially the latter half of 2 Samuel, there's something else that that becomes pretty clear about David as well. And it's though he points us to and shows us in many ways who the ideal king should be, David also shows us that he cannot be the ideal king. So as the book of Samuel, the account of the life and reign of David, draws a conclusion, the the author kind of wants to round out this portrait uh, that he's been drawing for us to show us once and for all that there is an ideal king for us to long for. And here in chapter 23, uh, the author wants to show us that today through uh, talking about all the king's men. So let me pray here for us before we read God's Word. Father, as we come and as we open Your Word together, we pray that You would open it for us. Father, that we would hear You speaking, that You would speak to us words of life and words of grace, and that You would write Your truth indelibly upon our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 23, let's begin in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachymanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and he struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. Next to him was Shema, the son of Agi the Herite. 
The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And the three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is God's word for us this morning. I want to look at this in three ways. In the first one, I want to focus on David. And uh, more specifically, I want to focus on his sigh. This expression that he gives to his thirst, his longing uh, that we read in this account. So as as I said, this event uh, is chronologically out of place, kind of this randomly included story uh, in a larger passage of chapter 23 where we are being told about David's mighty men and actually every single one of them. There's 30 of them in all. They will all be listed in the rest of chapter 23. Uh, But these are David's most loyal soldiers, and we've read about the first three. And these events, the events of this passage that we actually read about with this mighty act of the three... Uh, it probably took place around 2 Samuel 5. And if you remember around 2 Samuel 5, David had just become king. Uh, He'd been the anointed one for years, but Saul is now dead, and now the elders of Israel and of Judah have now come together, and they have anointed David as their king, and he has taken his place as the rightful king of Israel, anointed by God. And so, as it happens there at the beginning in 2 Samuel 5, Israel's longtime enemies, David's longtime enemies even as well, the Philistines, they decide they're going to they're test this new regime, this new political system, and see if, it's, uh, see if it can stand a test. And so David here, we find, has gone out to take his stand in his first test as king. And the story here in, in chapter 23, it tells us three things about how bad the situation is. The first is it's harvest time. Second, David's in a cave. It's not the first time he's been in a cave. Saul, uh, he took refuge in a cave when Saul pursued him in the wilderness. Uh, He takes refuge there when his son Absalom uh, rose in rebellion against him. Uh, And the third thing, the Philistines are in the valley of Rephaim, which is a mere five miles south of Jerusalem. The situation is not pretty. The circumstances are not good. Israel here is set up for a perfect storm of disaster at the outset of the long-awaited promised king's rule and reign. The enemy is so far into the country, they're almost to the capital. They might be even able to take it. David can't even sit on his throne because of this threat. And it's harvest time. So if they stay there into the harvest time, the Philistines very easily could wipe out the crop's For a whole year. So the reign of David and his kingdom 
The stark reality of the circumstances is that, that they are on the verge of a death blow, something that will take years, even decades, to recover from. And now here's the thing, if you read through the life of David, if you know the story of life of David, especially as we come to one of these stories at the end of the account of his life, we think to ourselves, well, come on, this is David, right? We know how this is going to end. Um, and I can't believe I ever found a way to work professional wrestling into a sermon, but here it goes. We all remember Hulk Hogan, right? Everybody remembers Hulk Hogan. Um, didn't matter how much you loved Hulk Hogan, didn't matter how big his foe was, how many were his foes, didn't matter how scared you were that he might be defeated, everybody knew there was going to come that point in the match when he would what? Hulk up, right? And he'd start storming around the ring, and he'd, people would be hitting him, and it would, he'd be impervious to the damage, and finally he would meet him with the big boot and drop the leg, and the match was over, and we all loved Hulk Hogan for it, right? But I, I want you to, to let the circumstances of David's situation sink in. It's easy to do that with David because this is David. He's going to win, right? He faced Goliath. But for the, from the man on the ground point of view, disaster is staring them in the face. Are they going to make it? Are they going to be able to withstand this test? And that is the context with which David, uh, which with what leads David to say longingly, Oh, that someone would get me a drink from the well at Bethlehem. Now, here's the thing. Here's another thing about this. David was not thirsty. We, knew da- we know David to be a great warrior and a great military chief. You do not set up camp where there is no water. It doesn't make any sense, right? So it's not that he's thirsty. You see, this is what it is. David's longing, his sigh, it's spiritual. It's deep. It's coming from his soul. It is a longing of the soul, a deep thirst. As we sang a minute ago, David throughout his life at many times was indeed a man of sorrows. And that's what he's dealing with here. He is thirsty for the promises of God to be real in his life. That's it. David wants the promises of God to be more real in his life at this moment than his circumstances are. Because at this moment, his circumstances are saying, I own you, I define you, I will shape you. We actually see an expression of this in Psalm 63, where the superscript actually tells us David penned that psalm in the wilderness, uh, perhaps in a situation very much like this. And in Psalm 63, David says this, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's the state of my soul before God in the midst of my circumstances. There's a great scene in the movie The Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne, the main character, is sitting with his friend uh, Red in the prison yard and they're discussing as to whether they would ever get out and what they would do. And this is what Andy tells Red. He says, you know where I would go? Zawantaneo, a place in Mexico right on the Pacific. You know what the Mexicans say about the Pacific? It's a place that has no memory, a warm place with no memory. That's where I'd go. And you see, when you hear Andy say that, in that moment you understand something. You understand that Mexico for Andy is not some dream vacation. It is hope. It's light in the darkness. It's life itself. This idea of a place he can go and find comfort 
and safety. David's cry for a drink is just like that. We've seen, as you go through his life, uh, David's life, you see how committed God was to David. David's just the, shep- the runt shepherd boy. Uh, he's just the runt of Jesse's sons. Then he's uh, before Goliath. He can't even wear a full armor of a warrior. And then he's uh, fleeing from Saul. And then he's battling his own sin. And throughout it all, we see that God is committed to David. But it's in this moment, despite the amazing promises of God and how tangible they have been in his life, David looks at the circumstances and says, they're all threatened. I'm weak. My kingdom is weak. Am I really the one? Am I really going to be able to be who God has called me to be? For David, at this point in his life, his circumstances seem more real than the promises of God. And he longs for something to happen to help that not be the case. And we all feel this. We all feel this. I don't know what it is for you right now. I don't know what you bring in here this morning. You know love God. You come here week after week. You go to church. You worship. You read your Bible. You know God loves you. You know God cares for you. You know God sent His Son for you. But I don't know what it is, but maybe this last month, the last year, whatever it is, all it has done is prove to you that no matter how hard you try, you fail. It could be working on your marriage. It could be working on your parenting. It could be... Um, It could be a besetting sin that you're trying to do battle against. But for you, no matter how much you know that God loves you, the love of God could not seem farther away. Or you know that God promises us that He will never leave us or forsake us. But for whatever reason, you have never felt more lonely in your life. And you say, actually, it's my loneliness that is shaping me. It's my loneliness that's defining me, not the presence of God. We all are longing for a drink from the well. Some of us don't even know that we're thirsty. But we are. We're all longing for that sweet water. And for David and for us, that sweet water is the grace of the promises of God. And he wants to drink them afresh. That's David's sigh. But let's continue here in this story. It's an amazing story. Secondly, as we see here, the mighty men's response. What is the mighty men's response? We hear, we see here, we, we read the list of these three of David's mighty men, and we read then that they hear this cry and they resolve to do something about it. The whole purpose of 23, as I said, is to tell us about 30, the 30 of David's uh, mighty men. If you remember in his life, when David first fled into the wilderness, when Saul sought for his life, when Saul was jealous and hated him, uh, David flees to the wilderness, and we find out that there, there were these men that rallied to David. And they become what is known to us in history as his mighty men. And the stories about the three we read here, and there's others, and they show us that these guys were the best of the best. They were the elite. They were mighty men. Come on, men. We all want to be known as that, right? Mighty men. And a favorite show of mine a few years back was a show called Surviving the Cut. And I'm just generally fascinated by anything having to do with our military. But what this show did was it chronicled the trials and the tests that the most elite men of our military have to go through to be parts of more elite branches of our military. You got Green Berets, Navy SEALs, um, Special Forces divers, SEAL snipers, all these amazing things. And you watch a show like that and you just sit back and you're like, 
America, right? Um, you just, you know, no matter what's going on in our country, when you look at these men, you know that our country is in good hands, right? These men were such men for David. And very tangibly, what they do for him here is he, despite his circumstances, despite what's going on, he will have these men to fall back on and say, I'm in good hands. But not necessarily because he's in the hands of the mighty men, as we'll see here in a second. So we get, you look at the story as it reads for us. Verse 15, David sighs, this longing for the water. And these three guys, the elite of the elite, they hear David. And in one verse, verse 16, we don't, we're not even told that they heard David say it. We're not told that they discussed anything. We just hear that David longs for the water and the men broke through. They went. They went after it. And the thing about verse 16 there is we don't get any details. We, you know, it's like this Braveheart story, and we want to know what happened. This is awesome. And you think about the circumstances. These men would have had to, they broke through the Philistine lines. We read that there was a garrison at Bethlehem, so there's at least 20 soldiers there that these three men are going up against. You think about being a Philistine in the moment. All of a sudden, these three guys burst up, and they're, they're, they're acting like they're an army, and you're wondering, okay, where's the rest of them? What's going on? What do they want? Uh, is there some treasure here? No, they want water. What's going on? I have no idea. I'm dead. The mighty men got me. Um, And that's how the story goes. And we want details, but it doesn't give it to us. And so they fight. They break through. They get the water, and they make their way back to their king, and they give it to David. And what does David do? He refuses to drink it. And we're blown away. We're thinking, do you not see what these guys just did for you? Right? And not only does he refuse to drink it, but he pours it out. What is going on? Well, we're actually given a key to understand it there. Starting verse 16, we're told that he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of men who went and risked their lives? See, he poured it out before the Lord. It was a drink offering. He uses the language of sacrifice. It's an act of worship. These three, three men actually would have been very honored at David's gesture. This is what David's saying. David is saying that I realize because of the sacrifice of these men that God is with me. Because of what these men have done, what God has done through them, I know the hands that I'm in. And God has spoken a word of grace to me. And these guys, these guys weren't just daredevils, right? They're not just going out for the thrill of it. They knew what they were doing. They were betting their lives on the promises of God for the love of their king. And they are then what history records for us as mighty men. So it's worth asking as we see this story, and this story kind of typifies the mighty men Um, So what does it mean then? What does it mean to be mighty in God's eyes? What does it mean to be mighty and courageous and strong in God's eyes? Well, I I stole these two points, but I think they're uh, they're well worth mentioning. I think this is two things we can get from this passage. The first key to being mighty is recognizing that everything is a gift from God solely as a result of His promises. That's what David's realizing in the moment. Realizing, recognizing that everything is a gift from God solely as a result of his promises, even when my circumstances tell me otherwise. Especially when my circumstances tell me otherwise. That's really what David's pouring out is about. He's saying this water is not some trophy for me. 
It's a gift from God. And therefore, I can pour it out. And these men, too, they weren't going to play the hero. That's not what they were after. They knew, they went knowing God's promises were at stake. That's why they go. You know, we think of mightiness. You know, we have the typical uh, world's definition of mightiness. Um, Maybe these big acts of faith. You know, I don't, what, what is a parallel for bursting up into Bethlehem and fighting against Philistines? I don't know. But here's a question especially something that David's pouring out points us to, what if real mightiness, mightiness in the eyes of God, is something much different than the big, the big acts? What if there's actually something behind the big acts that leads to the big acts? And what if it's something like banking my life on the promises of God, especially banking my life on the promises of God in my ordinary Monday through Friday? When my week, I know my week is going to look no different than all the weeks that have come before it. Yet I wake up on Monday, and it's not just Monday. It's another day that God has given me. I'm banking my life on the promises of God, and I find the mighty in the ordinary. What if real mightiness says, my accomplishments, my achievements in this life do not define me. They're a gift. Therefore, I can pour them out before the Lord? What if how well I am doing or how well I feel I am doing does not define me? Therefore, I can pour it out before the Lord. How many people like me? How many people approve of me? How many people applaud me? That does not, it cannot define me. Therefore, I pour it out before the Lord. You know, I think we would all agree if we were going to build the perfect society, uh, we would agree that greed is something that doesn't need to be there, right? Uh, we would agree that greed is a cancer on any society. But something I'm becoming more and more uh, acquainted with as I do college ministry especially, uh, working with millennials and youth ministry before it, is that we have, we have built for ourselves, our culture and on the college campus, uh, what has been termed a meritocracy. Have you heard this word? A meritocracy. Um, it's that I'm living and believing the lie that I am what I do, that the sum total of my being is what I do, what I accomplish. And you think about why greed would be a problem. What is ever going to break us of our greed? If I'm living my life believing that everything that I do defines me when I have something worth giving away, why would I give it away if I'm the one that earned it, Right? What would ever break us of our greed? What would ever break us of looking at our accomplishments as the sum total of who we are? The only way possible would be to realize that all that we are and all that we have is a gift from God. I don't don't know how hard you've worked to get where you are today, but there is a majority of your life that has been completely outside your control your circumstances, who you know, where you're from, all of it, gifts from God. But the second thing here, the second thing we see in the mighty men, and it's an amazing thing, and it's this, that their king's wish was their command. There's no hint of David like saying this to anyone or that he's commanding anyone to go do it, but they go and they do it immediately. These three were so devoted that there was no difference for them in a suggestion and a command. 
You see, this is the biggest difference between a Christian and an ethical religious person. The ethical religious person asks, what is required of me? The ethical religious person acknowledges God and approaches God and says, okay, what is required of me? What do I need to do? Right? And that's to concentrate on the rules or the regulations. The Christian, however, is focused where? On the heart of God. The Christian wants to know what God loves. The religious person says, what do you want me to do? The Christian says, what does God love? I want to be about that. The religious person is looking for a reward. The Christian is looking for the joy and pleasure of God himself. You look at verse 15 and 16 again. Let this sink in. Oh, that someone would give me a drink. And then as verse 16 reads, they broke through. There's no discussion Their devotion was spontaneous and automatic. That's how much they loved their king. You don't have to look far uh, to see an illustration of this. And a stark illustration for me on the campus. As you think about a student uh, as he or she begins a semester. Uh, You have your first week of school where you're going to all your classes for the first time. uh, And what is known as syllabus day. Right? Where you're going to sit down as a class, the professor's going to hand out the syllabus. And the whole uh, purpose of that first meeting is to understand what are the expectations and requirements of this class and what are the expectations and requirements of this professor. Where is it that I need to fall in line and what do I need to do to make a good grade? Right? But now imagine that same student has begun dating someone at the beginning of that semester. I can guarantee you they're not waiting for a syllabus. Right? They're going to go after that person. They're going to they're do whatever it takes to find out what makes that person happy, and they're going to be about it because they want to bring that person joy because in that person's joy is their joy. What is true mightiness in God's eyes? Seeing our lives as gifts from God founded entirely upon His promises and loving God in such a way that my relationship to Him is founded not upon what He gives me, but who he is. The final thing here I want to look at. If that is mightiness, what is the key? What is the key for us to be mighty people of God? You see, if we end here, if we end here and we just say, be mighty, we leave, and whether it happens immediately or down the road, it crushes us. Because the more that I try to be mighty the more I see how much I am not. Right? Everything in this book has been recorded in such a way in order to give us this well-rounded portrait of David. And in so doing, through that portrait, we are pointed to something beyond David, to someone beyond David who would really be the perfect king. You see, you have two choices Two choices when you come to the Bible and its stories and its characters, especially in the Old Testament. You got, uh, got, you got stories like David and Goliath or Jonah and the fish or Daniel and the lion's den. And we tend to read them. We have this natural bent for some reason to read them kind of like an Aesop's fable, right? What is the moral? What, what am I, what's the point for me? What is the moral of the story? What am I supposed to go do? Where am I supposed to be like David? Where am I supposed to not be like David? And we just read the characters as examples of what to do and what not to do. Uh, These people of the faith, these great giants of the faith are examples for us, but we can't stop there because if we stop there, if we do that, all the Bible is to us is just one big wagging finger and it crushes us because we know that we cannot live up to it. 
And we're just stuck on the treadmill of trying to figure it out. But we actually see Jesus after his resurrection in Luke 24. A beautiful chapter in all the Bible. Luke 24, we have Jesus walking with two on the road to Amazus. They're dealing with their grief and their bewilderment and all the events that have taken place over Easter weekend. And we read this. Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we find those two on the road to Emmaus. We find even the disciples as they're hiding in a room. They are, their world has been rocked. And the reason that their death, that Jesus' death had wrecked them, and the reason that they thought life was falling apart, was because they did not understand how God works. Because they hadn't seen it in the Scriptures, though Jesus had pointed them to it and told them time and again. They'd only seen the Scriptures on a moralistic level. They hadn't seen that for every prophet, for every king, for every priest, for every hero, for every liberator, the main purpose that each one of them served was to point God's people to one, the true king, the true priest, the true prophet. That's what they'd missed. And so in other words, you can read, either read the Bible moralistically as mainly about us, and you leave feeling crushed every time. Or you can read it the way Jesus did, as about him, reading it redemptively about what he's done and what he would do. You see, that's why when we come to a story like this, we actually now begin to see David and his mighty men. They're just a picture. As great of a picture as this is, it's just a picture. A shadow of one to come, the mighty man himself. And we begin to see that there's this big overarching story from cover to cover in this book about the mighty men who heard your sigh, who heard your longing. And so he broke through. He entered the battle. He entered the fray. And he was mighty for you. And you see, the thing about Jesus is Jesus didn't go out at the risk of his life. He went out at the cost of it, knowing full well what he was getting into. You see, when these three mighty men return, we see that David in the moment is a changed man. He's overwhelmed with the love of his men and and gratefulness at the grace of God. And because of it, he is able to pour it out before the Lord. You see, we get in there and we can say, what are we going to pour out for the Lord? But what are you ever going to pour out for Him compared to what He has poured out for you? Only when you see Him as your great, mighty man can you ever even begin to pour something out. Can you begin to be generous instead of selfish? Can you begin to be loving and caring instead of controlling? Can you begin to be confident and secure in who you are in God instead of constantly filled with anxiety and depression? Only when you begin to taste the mightiness and the love of this King, the true King, then you begin to realize He is worth it. 
that I really can follow Him. I really can obey Him. I really can do everything that He says. Even when everything in my life says the opposite. Because that's when I begin to see that His promises really are true. And not only are they true, (laughs) but they're for you. This is why baptism is so beautiful, is it not? It's not just that the promises are true, but they are for you and for your children. I just ask you one thing this morning. Do you believe that? It's a mighty thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we long to be mighty. And we pray that you would help us to be mighty in the strength of your might for us in Christ Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. If you take your bulletin, stand for the benediction and remain standing for the doxology.